We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. On today's podcast, we are going to highlight and bring additional recognition and awareness to CMV. Today, I just want to have the opportunity to share with you another family story and their experience with not only the diagnosis, but the early interventions and some of their journey with ICMV diagnosis. So Lyndon, thank you so much for being here today. And I'm actually just going to just toss this back to you and let you kind of share about you and your family. And, uh, and yeah, just get us started. Okay, sounds good. My name is Lyndon Pretty. My husband Kyle and I have been married for 15 years. Uh, we live in Edmond. I born and raised in Oklahoma City. I am a pre-K teacher in one of the larger school districts in Oklahoma City. We have two beautiful daughters. Kylan is 12 and she'll be in the seventh grade this upcoming school year. And Elizabeth, who you'll hear me call Lizzie, um, is seven and will be in the first grade next year. And she is my baby that was born with CMB. Why don't you share with us a little bit about Lizzie's birth experience and the diagnosis and how you kind of came into that and kind of bring us into that that awareness of okay here's here's what i experienced and here's what you may or may not experience when it comes to having or attaining this diagnosis okay great my pregnancy started out normal my husband and i with our older daughter kylan had the blood work done at about 12 weeks to look for any chromosomal defects down syndrome spina bifida that kind of stuff not because it would have changed our thoughts on the pregnancy or anything but just to know in case we needed to prepare ourselves for something like that. Um, So Kylan's came back fine. I assumed, you know, Lizzie's would be no big deal. And then I got a phone call from our doctor saying, your blood work showed an abnormal protein in it, which sometimes can indicate neural tube defects, maybe spina bifida or something like that. I'm going to refer you to a specialist to see a specialist to get further investigated. So about a week later of stewing and worrying and praying and all of those emotions, we went to the specialist. Um, They did ultrasounds, scans, everything. Lizzie looked great. There were no problems, no complications. They said, you know, it's one of those just weird things that happens. You have like a one in a million chance of your child having any neural tube defects. But you do have placenta previa which is where your placenta kind of lies completely over your cervix. And they asked me, you know, did I experience that in my first pregnancy, which I hadn't. Um, So they recommended that I come back in four weeks and just check on that again. So four weeks went by. I came back um, and it had moved partially, but not completely yet. So they just advised that I come back in another four weeks. So four weeks later, I went back. It had moved completely, but they noted that Lizzie hadn't grown in about eight weeks span and we're concerned about that so they diagnosed diagnosed her with intrauterine growth restriction which IUGR is what you'll hear um doctors say but they couldn't really give an explanation of why she hadn't been growing you know blood flow in the cord looked good she had the amniotic fluid but they gave me a steroid shot and said 
Our goal is to keep her in utero between 34 and 36 weeks. We're gonna to continue to monitor you every three weeks and just check her growth out. So I just continued to go every three weeks. She still wasn't, she was growing a little, but not much. And it got to be 32 weeks and I had her check up with my regular doctor. Everything looked good, heartbeat was good. He didn't do an ultrasound because I was going later that day um, to see my specialist. I get to the specialist's office and they do the ultrasound and they note that there's no blood flow in the umbilical cord. And her heart rate was in D cell. Her heart rate was not beating as it should. And I come to think of it, she hadn't been moving as much as normal. And I should have looked at that as a warning sign, but I really didn't think much about it because she was so small. So the movements were different with her than a six pound baby. Um, but they said, we're going to go ahead and send you over to the hospital to be, you know, just monitored for the night. So after a panicked phone call to my husband, who was about 45 minutes away from work and he was going to hit five o'clock traffic and called to my dad and my boss, my principal, saying I'm not going to be at work the next day. I get hooked up to the monitors and there's no heart rate, period. They can't find a heart rate. Um, so they call my OBGYN immediately. He said, he's on the other side of town from the hospital I'm at, but he said, I'll be there in 10 minutes. And literally 10 minutes later, he comes flying through the door, throwing his scrubs on and said, we're having a baby today. There's no options. We, this is going to save her life potentially. So I didn't really even have time to comprehend, think about it or anything. They had told me at the doctor's office earlier, they thought she was about two and a half pounds. So at 31 weeks and five days, babies are normally four or five pounds. So I'm thinking, I have no idea what a two and a half pound baby is going to look like. Well, she comes out about 10 minutes later and she's one pound, 14 ounces, and is 15 inches long. Um, and I just remember thinking, as they said, oh, she's here. It's a girl. And I just remember thinking, please, God, let me hear her cry. Let me hear her cry. Let me know she's okay. And I heard the tiniest little, it sounded like a lamb, a baby lamb cry. And so I knew, okay, she's at least breathing on her own. They bring her over to me and let me see her real quick. Just, I mean, a tiny, she was tinier than my oldest daughter's baby dolls, but these big, her eyes were wide open and she just looked at me and I thought, okay, maybe we're going to be okay. And so um, my husband rushed to the NICU with her um, because I said, you need to go be with her. I want her to know that there's a parent there. And he comes in to my room. I hadn't heard anything. I was waiting in the room. He comes in about 20 minutes later and said, Lyndon, you're never going to believe it. She's breathing on her own. She doesn't even need a respirator or anything. She's moving. She's making noises. She's reacting to them. You know, she, she's going to be okay. And so later that day, the nurse that, and the NICU doctor came in and said, she's a rock star. We have never seen a baby bo be born this tiny and thriving as well as she is not needing, you know, any support with breathing. She has a little bit of jaundice, but other than that, she's fine. So then a couple of days into her NICU stay, they said, we're going to do a test for CMV. And I had, I had no idea what CMV was. So they kind of explained it to me, but they prefaced it with saying, she, she doesn't have CMV. She doesn't look like your typical CMV baby, but we're required to do it on babies that are born later in the gestational period that are so underweight. 
Um, but don't, but don't worry, everything's going to be fine. So of course I go home and what do I do? I get on Google and read about CMV and anything you read on Google is not very optimistic. And I thought, oh gosh, I can't even imagine, but you know, kept relying on the fact that they said, oh, she doesn't have the typical, um, features or like patakai or her enzymes are all good. Anything that normal CMV babies have, none of that. Well, I get a phone call later that evening from the doctor and he says, well, we got her urine results back because that's how they collected it. And she tested positive for CMV. And I just thought like my heart stopped beating. It almost felt like I didn't even know what to say. I was speechless. He said, if you want to come in and, you know, discuss it with me more, you can. So of course we weren't, we didn't live that far from the hospital. So we were there within a few minutes. And by that time I'm in tears and hysterical. And my husband just keeps saying, Lyndon, you don't know anything yet. All you know is what you've read on the internet. Like, let's just take it a step at a time. And um, so we talked about it and he said, we've already been in contact with a disease specialist at the pediatric hospital. She's really hesitant to give her any antiviral medicines because of her size. Um, so we want to do a spinal test to check her spinal fluid. And if that comes back negative, we're going to opt out of the antiviral medicine because it's too risky for her size. And one thing that really stands out to me in that whole thing is I remember a nurse, one of my favorite nurses, while I'm just standing there looking at Lizzie, just tears streaming down my face, she said, what do you see when you see that baby? And I said, I see this perfect little baby. And she said, that CMV diagnosis will never define who your child is. That perfect baby you see is your perfect baby. So that's one thing that really just still stands out today. And let that bring hope to you that you know, this diagnosis never defines who your child is or what your child will accomplish. Um, so they have the spinal tap. Everything's great. It's not showing up in her spinal fluid. So we think oh, we're in the clear. Maybe, you know, my viral load wasn't real high. Hers wasn't showing up as being high. We're fine. So they went ahead and had an eye specialist come in because that's one way they can check for signs in babies in the NICU is the back of their eyes if there's any scarring or anything coming up. He comes in, he says, nope, her eyes look great. And then he came in a couple of weeks later, no, her eyes look great. Um, and then she spent 52 days in the NICU. They called me when she was four pounds and said, hey, she's four pounds, come get her. But she did fail her newborn hearing screening. And they thought, well, maybe she's a very alert baby. She wiggles a lot. She makes a lot of noise. So let's test her again before we release her from the hospital. So they tested her again. And that time she had passed one ear, but still was failing her left ear. And so that was one thing they told us we needed to follow up with when we left the NICU was that to have her hearing screened again. And then also to see the eye doctor just to double check. So she came home for a couple of weeks. Everything was great, pretty low key, no issues. Well, then it was time for that eye doctor appointment. So we go to the doctor and he sees spots in the back of her eye. So they immediately call my pediatrician and he immediately calls that disease, infectious disease doctor that they had originally consulted with. And she said, I'll see her the next day because we need to get rolling on something. So um, between the spots in the eye and the hearing, 
um, failing that hearing screening. And at that time, they were telling me that she would probably have a severe profound loss in her left ear, and but right ear was still completely normal. So I'm thinking, so now I'm going to have this child who has a hearing loss completely in one ear, and now she's got this scarring on the back of her eyes. You know, will that affect her vision? I had no idea what we were going to be looking at in the future. But luckily, everybody was super proactive, and we got into the infectious infectious disease doctor, and she recommended she go on vancylacyclovir. Um, sorry for the pronunciation. It's an antiviral medicine that they use um, a lot of times with like AIDS, chemo patients, that kind of stuff to keep them, prevent the CMV. And it can be really immune compromising and they were worried about her taking liquids at, you know, three months old and thought she might have to have an infusion specialist come in and give her infusions and everything. She would have to, going on this drug, she would have to go to the hospital twice a week to have her platelets checked because it can really drop your platelets. So, I mean, there and there were risks involved. They said, you know, lab rats could have um, fertility issues and that could be something in the future. But at that point, we didn't care. We just knew this is what we needed to do was get her on this antiviral medicine. And so they said, most studies show three months, but I'm, if you're willing to do it for six months, let's try six months on this antiviral medicine. So she took it twice a day for six months. Um, we always took it orally. She never had any issues. She always tolerated it. She took it like a champ, never made her sick. Never once did we have a platelet count drop. Her numbers always stayed good every week with her blood work. Um, so I, I think, you know, this, essentially this antiviral medicine may have saved a lot of heartache and pain in the future because I really do think it helped because fast forward now to where she is, we have no vision issues. She tests normal every year on her vision test. She's never failed one. Even when they come to the school and screen her, she always passes those tests, which a lot of times you'll see the younger kids fail those screenings and then go to the doctor and have no problems. And she also that hearing loss in her left ear is now a mild hearing loss. She still hears at like 45 decibels and higher in that ear. So, and I really, like I said, I really think that it was that antiviral medicine in the six months on it that completely reversed the course that she could have taken. That is fascinating. And yeah. so essentially, I just want to be clear, essentially you left the NICU thinking, okay, we did all the required testing. We did the spinal tap. They said, we're clear, clear at this yeah. point. Yes. Wow. And so then it was later after you went home. Yeah, about two weeks later. Two weeks later after being discharged, you went in for another appointment that revealed the, the eye appointment. Yep. Wow. That's fascinating. So tell me about your 52 days in the NICU. Was it primarily the IUGR trying to get her up to the yep. weight? That was the only that? issue we ever had. Um, she never had respiratory no, I mean, nothing. It, they called her a feeder and a grower. She was there to eat and to grow, and that was it. So yeah. it was pretty, it was an uneventful 52 days there. <laughs> okay, so so fast forward. It sounds like you guys jumped right in with all of the antiviral. You were on it for six months. It truly did have an impact, it sounds like, um, yeah. ultimately on the outcomes for Lizzie. When y'all finished that treatment of the six months of medication, 
in between all of that, did y'all continue with therapies or did y'all, yes. what was kind of your course of treatment through all of that process? Um, well, Sooner Start contacted us immediately um, because the NICU gives information to Sooner Start anytime they have a premature baby like that. And actually I was surprised that our regular insurance company was very helpful with therapies and ideas and checking on her and everything as well. So we started Sooner Start from the beginning. So at about four months old, she started seeing a speech bath, even though she didn't talk, and also an occupational therapist as well. So we started that from the get-go and continued doing those sessions once a week, every week until she aged out of the program at three. So did they ever give you a definitive diagnosis of the congenital CMV? They gave it to us in the hospital when her urine tested positive for it. Uh, And they were kind of surprised because typically by a certain age, like 80% of the population has had CMV because it is such a common virus. I had never heard of it before. But what really shocked them was the fact that I work in a public school system and was just now, you know, contracting it. So that was surprising to them. That's a good point because, I mean, you've been exposed for how many years? (laughs) Yeah, and then before that, I mean, growing up in high school, I worked in childcare. So I've always been around kids. And so to finally contract it when I'm almost 30. And pregnant, yes. (laughs) And pregnant, of course. (laughs) Yes. Oh my goodness. Let's talk about Lizzie now, or or maybe you even want to go back further and kind of talk about some of those, I, I don't know, aggressive therapies that maybe y'all did for the early intervention. No, definitely. So like I said, um, we started Lizzie on Senior Start immediately. Um, I'm also a huge advocate, one as a pre-K teacher and now two as a CMV mom. Early intervention can make a world of difference for your child. And I think a lot of times people are, might be in denial or still kind of going through that grieving process, but just go ahead. Any services that are offered to you, do it. And just know that you're always your child's best advocate. So we started Lizzie in therapy till she was three. um, And then eventually her occupational therapist through Sooner Start recommended a private physical therapist because we also started that because she was hitting milestones, but they were a lot later physically. So it took her longer to sit up. It took her longer to crawl. It took her longer to walk. And we even saw at one point an orthopedic specialist for the walking issue because she was two and still not walking or close to two and still not walking. But he said, you know, I can't say that she has cerebral palsy because she's never been diagnosed with it because prior to being released from the NICU, they did an MRI and it showed no brain damage whatsoever. So I can't say that's what she has, but, you know, I just give her time. He said, physically, she she has normal muscle tone. I think it's just going to come later, like every other, you know, milestone. He said, she might not ever be your star athlete, but she will, I do think, you know, feel confident saying that she will walk someday. So she started walking right a little after turning two, she was about 25, 26 months old is when she started walking. She had always, she talked normal from the get-go, so we never had issues with speech, but um, between seeing that occupational therapist and physical therapist, they finally got her a little bit more caught up on motor, gross motor development, 
And then it started to be time to age out of Sooner Start and school. And a lot of people don't know, but the public school systems, most larger ones offer a three-year-old program for kids aging out of Sooner Start. So if you have a kid in Sooner Start, I highly recommend finding out more about that. Um, so we got her tested for the three-year-old program. And of course, um, the only thing that she was delayed on was those gross motor skills. Well, they can't qualify you for the three-year-old program on just a gross motor delay. Um, there has to be more to it. And we didn't even have really a hearing loss or anything like that to fall back on either because she just had that mild loss and was not wearing a hearing aid because the her ENT said it, for her it doesn't make a difference. It actually is, gives her more noise, more background noise, and will probably cause her to become more distracted. And that's why she doesn't need a hearing aid. So I said, I don't, I, I know there's some, there's got to be a diagnosis to explain, you know, this gross demo, motor delay. I'm not going to just say, oh, it's just because she's a CMV baby. Like I've got to have something and I don't care if she has a diagnosis, but at least that diagnosis will get her the services that she deserves to have. So I contacted our pediatrician and said, I want to see a neurologist. I think, I really think she has cerebral palsy. And he said, great. I mean, I'm, if you want to do it, let's do it. So he got us in, of course, it was like a three month wait. Um, but we finally got in, um, the doctor saw her and said, well, you know, I think she probably does have cerebral palsy, probably in the cerebellum area, because though she's walking, her balance is still a little bit off. She struggles with the balance issue. So let's have an MRI. We did the MRI and people would ask me, I mean, do you want her? I mean, do you really want your kid to have cerebral palsy? And I would always say, you know what, if it gives her services, yes, because I know plenty of, I have a teacher I work with that has cerebral palsy and she has a normal life with children and is happy. So I don't care. You know, again, a diagnosis isn't going to define my child. So she does have cerebral palsy. Her um, damage is in the gray matter of her brain, which the doctor said does not happen very often. Um, but luckily, the part of the brain it's in, um, Lizzie can learn new skills just like any other kid her age. But if it hits that certain area in her brain, it has to rewire to another part of her brain. So it just takes her a little bit longer to pick up on things like walking or climbing upstairs or getting in and out of the car by herself or anything like that. It just takes her a little bit longer. And um, she still has some issues when she gets up high on like a slide or something. She kind of gets the balance gets thrown off. But other than that, I mean, she functions as a normal seven-year-old. We did, so she got into the three-year-old pro program because she had that diagnosis. They went ahead and pushed her into the pre-K special ed program, and they realized pretty quickly that she didn't need to be in a special ed um, classroom all day. That, so they pushed her out, and she ended up, by the end of that school year, being in regular ed three-fourths of the day, and then only going back to special ed pre-K to take a nap in the afternoon because she'd get tired a lot easier Probably one, because she's always been a napper, and two, because cerebral palsy, you'll notice when she gets sleepier, her balance gets even more offset, and I, they just tire a lot easier than your typical children do. And my husband and I then made the decision to hold her back again in pre-K because she still was a little bit developmentally behind, and we thought it's not, you know, at this young age, it's not going to hurt her to go hold her back, so we held her back one year, but she was full-time regular ed pre-K. She did great. She 
flourished that year and then coronavirus hit. So she kind of got shorted the end of that school year, but still um, made really good progress. So this year coming up, we went to kindergarten, but we had to change schools because the school she was at didn't go past pre-K special ed. It stopped. And they really were worried, you know, this will be Lizzie's first day in regular ed without an aide in the classroom. We don't know how she's going to do. Well, we're at almost the end of the school year and Lizzie gets to go back to her homeschool next year and be in a regular ed first grade class because she's done just fine in regular ed kindergarten and just be pulled by a resource teacher because her reading scores are a little bit lower than her math scores are. So, Wow. So when we talk about CMV, sometimes we think about the intellectual disability, the significant delays as far as the, the cerebral palsy and, and, you know, so many other things that are kind of tied to that CMV. But it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like Lizzie's done just phenomenal. And yeah. so, yeah. so when we talk about that, that vast outcomes, Lizzie's done very, very well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, she has. Lizzie really is a true success in he calls every time he sees her for her well child checkup. There's my miracle baby because, but it just goes to show you that, you know, early intervention and being proactive about your child's care, care really can make a world of difference. So just to be clear, is she on an active IEP then at school or will she, she be? Yes, yeah, she is. And um, we'll continue to keep her on one. Just IEPs are, I mean, I think people think, oh, my kid's on an IEP. No, they're a great thing to have because they allow for your child to have the resources they need. Um, so Lizzie still gets OT, occupational therapy, and physical therapy through the school district, and that's on her IEP. She gets it twice a week for 20 minutes. Um, and she also has that extra help from a resource teacher. So if she needs to be pulled and is struggling in any areas academically, and then if she needs to, like, once she gets older and gets into those testing grades, if she needs to take a test by herself without, you know, a classroom of distractions, or if she needs a little bit longer on a test, because, like I said, you still notice children with cerebral palsy do get tired and kind of shut down a little bit easier than your typical children. So having that IEP just gives her that extra support that she needs to be as successful as possible in school. And and that's exactly what I've always understood IEPs to do and yeah. to be for families and, and students. It is those extra layers of support that are out there for uh, just that team aspect of getting the child exactly what they need. So, exactly. Um, exactly. so I love how you worded that. That was really good. Um, so tell me about your, the, the CMV community that you're a part of. Well, I, for a lot of years, I wasn't involved in the CMV community. And I have to say, I'm, I'm that CMV mom, just because everything I saw was so discouraging. Um, unfortunately, there are some sad stories. And I always felt almost guilty, like reading people's stories and thinking, oh my gosh, I can't imagine, you know, being in their footsteps. How did I get so lucky with Lizzie? And so it was really discouraging. And it wasn't until Lizzie turned about three that I um, kind of did some research and I found out there was an organization here in Oklahoma um, for CMB parents. And so I got hooked up with them through Facebook and we've been to the, to the um, Capitol when they've done that and everything and just stayed in touch that way through Facebook and that CMB group. And I've carried a lot of guilt through her whole diagnosis. Like, how could I let myself contract this virus that, you know, has 
even though not necessarily negatively, it has changed Lizzie's course of life. So there's just a lot of guilt and feelings associated with all of that. Did you know when you contracted CMV? Like probably late in my second trimester, I had like what was like a cold or allergies. I mean, we live in Oklahoma, so we all have allergies, but I never like ran a fever or was like deathly ill, but come like now looking back and thinking about the timeline and that's kind of about the time Lizzie stopped growing in utero. That is probably when I had contracted it. And a lot of people, adults, when they catch CMV, they don't have any symptoms at all, but I just happened to have what kind of just felt like a mild cold. How do you advocate for moms to either protect themselves or advocate for their babies once their babies are here on behalf of the CMV? Right. I mean, and I, I hate that CMV still isn't recognized as much as it should be. I almost feel like when we go in, because we have other blood work done while we're pregnant, there should be a test immediately that says if you're, you've already had CMB and are carry for it, or if you've never had it before, um, because that's the number way to w- number one way to really prevent it ha- from happening the congenital CMB. But anytime a teacher's pregnant at work or anything, I I mean I'm the first one to go to them and say, hey, I mean this is my experience. Let me tell you my story. Just you know, be extra precautious anytime a kid, because we all, we work with kids. They sneeze on us. They touch us after their hands been who knows where. So just, you know, be super, you know, extra cautious and diligent and any like cold sniffle, rash, anything you have that feels out of the, you know, ordinary, go see your doctor and tell them, hey, I have this teacher friend who's had CMB. Will you please test me for it? I love that. So you truly have become an advocate to moms who are pregnant in that way. I mean, right there, you are bringing awareness and advocacy. So yeah, it's become a part of who you are. Yes. Um, So when you talk about, when you talk about Lizzie, how do you describe Lizzie? She is the most stubborn child ever. She, and she has been from the get-go. It's, I mean, she's going to do it. It doesn't matter how long she's, you know, it's going to take her or how many tries she's going to do it. She loves life. She just has this natural, I mean, just, she always is smiling. She's always happy. When she was a baby, we would take her to restaurants and she'd be like cooing and babbling and people would always like get the biggest kick out of her because she's just making all kinds of noises and so happy. And, um, she's, probably the most empathetic child I've ever met. She's got a very tender heart and, you know, notices when, you know, her sister, her older sister seems off or, you know, mom, did you have a really bad day at school? Because you just seem, you know, off or different. Um, So she just, just has a, everybody that meets her just instantly loves her. Um, When we went to uh, the thing at the Capitol a couple of years ago, we didn't get to go last year because of COVID. There was another little boy there that was a CMV baby and he was just initially attracted to her. And she had these long blonde pigtails and he would not leave her alone. It was the cutest thing. So anybody, like she has tons of friends. She even has a boyfriend supposedly. So she, I mean, she just has this zest for life. She's just this amazing little ball of energy people are drawn to her. So. Yes, immediately. And I think then too, when they hear her story and where she's come from, that makes them even more drawn to her. So. Absolutely. Okay. So your oldest daughter, Kylan, tell us a little bit about that relationship. If you, if you think that Kylan wouldn't mind you sharing a little bit about oh, no, that. Um, I love the sibling piece to this. 
they are five and a half years apart. Um, and I felt, and that, that's another goes back to the, the guilt thing. I felt guilty when Lizzie was born because I had this five and a half year old who had been the only child for five and a half years. And then she has a sister come into the world the way that she did. And so that was this, another struggle on top of the other guilt for, you know, having a baby early and having her be little and have CMV um, was keeping life as normal and constant for Kylan to make her know that she was still, you know, a part of the family and needed and wanted. But Kylan instantly, the first time she saw Lizzie in the NICU, she said, she's smaller than my baby dolls I have. She said, can we call her incubator, her dollhouse? And so, and she, and just instantly felt this need to protect and watch over Lizzie. And that's how she's been from the get-go. Um, I think at times she might be a little bit resentful and feel like, you know, Lizzie gets all the, here's this, you know, I have this little sister, she gets all the attention and people hear her story and they want to hear, you know, more about her, but she never uh, has ever vocalized it to us. But she, I mean, she's Lizzie's second mom. <laughs> I could always count on her to, you know, if I need her to help me get Lizzie ready, or if Lizzie's doing something that she shouldn't be doing, Kylan's always the first one to jump in and kind of take over that role. But like I said, she's uber, uber protective of her. Um, if anybody were ever to mess with Lizzie or make fun of her or anything, they better watch out because she's got a big sister that will be gunning for them. <laughs> I love that. I, I I absolutely love the sibling relationship. You share a little bit about some of the advocacy efforts that you're doing up at the Capitol. Maybe share just a little bit about the group and how they do that and what you guys do when you go to the Capitol, because sometimes that's a very scary place to be. And um, I did hear that teachers have this, since they did the walk a few years ago to the Capitol, that they have this innate ability to go and advocate yeah, for other like things. We can just save the world, you know. We <laughs> done it for our own students and we'll do it for other causes too. Um, I was really nervous. I've only been one year um, and I thought I didn't really know what to expect, but Governor Stitt, because that was the governor at the time, came out and signed a proclamation and he did kind of ask, you know, some questions. He didn't have a whole lot of time, the limitless time, but he did come and ask some, you know, a few questions about, you know, our child and what they had gone through with the CMB diagnosis. And so it was really good experience. And I think prior to COVID, you know, the group would do zoo outings and trips and different things like that to kind of connect with one another because it is, I mean, having that, I'm lucky enough where I have an awesome family support system and even teacher friends and everything, but some people don't. And so to have that extra support system of people, even, if their child's situation isn't the same of yours, they still can, you know, be empathetic and understand what you're going through. Absolutely. This truly is one of my most favorite things to do is to have an opportunity to meet people and hear their stories and their journeys with different situations. And then, of course, I feel like I walk away, you know, having a new new best friend. I, I've just loved it so, so much. And I know that there are lots of families that are going to be listening going, okay, I need to hear some really positive things and some good things that I'm, I'm in a very scary moment. So, you know, what, what are some things I need to advocate for, for not only myself, but for my baby and, and how we right. can get the best things. So. Right. And I was just going to say one more thing, and especially when the children get to a certain age and if they have that cognitive, cognitive ability to understand, like explain to your children what's going on. Lizzie knows that she was born with C. I mean, she would tell anybody that asked her, 
her birth story and that she was born, you know, mom got a virus that made Lizzie sick when she was in the belly. And because of it, she has CP and this is what CP is. And that's why sometimes I get off balance. I mean, she'll, she'll tell anybody. She knows her story, but she knows that it's also a huge part of who she is, but it will never define who she is. That is powerful, powerful words right there. And so you've actually been very vocal with, with her on her understanding everything. Yeah. I mean, from as long as she, you know, as soon as she was old enough to kind of understand what was going on, we've never sugarcoated it in any, any way. We've, you know, talked to her as adults, but kind of dumbed it down to kid version where she could understand, but she knows, you know, that she, we call, she has bruises on her brain and that's essentially what's caused her major, you know, motor issues. You are creating one um, giant and um, very strong self-advocate for the future. Yes. So that's, and that's my goal because someday, you know, I may not be around to advocate for her, So I need her to be able to, you know, stand up and advocate for herself. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405 271 5072.